Hi there, I'm Brian Davis. Welcome to The Heart of the Matter, a series in which we share conversations with inspiring and interesting people and dive into the core issues and motivations behind their work, their lives, and their worldview. Today, we are welcoming Matthew Graves, also known as Banover, who is an admin at Less Wrong, one of the most popular rationality blogs, a former staff writer at MIRI, the Machine Intelligence Research Institute, and a sometimes instructor at CIFAR. And Matt, maybe you can help me with the acronym for CIFAR. That's the Center for Applied Rationality. They're a nonprofit uh, here in Berkeley that does uh, rationality education for people. And uh, so we, we've, uh, in your introduction, we've already mentioned the word rationality twice. So let's give a little bit of an introduction maybe as to what we are talking about when we are thinking of rationality as a movement or rationalism as a movement. I think good introduction to this that recently came out is a book by Julia Galef called Scout Mindset. And basically, Julia looks at sort of the emotional underpinning of this. Like, why would someone even want to do this in the first place? Right. For many people, it's painful to focus on ways that they've personally been wrong. Um, but for some people, they're sort of drawn towards this. For me, I think this is largely the result of thinking a lot about like what I'm doing, how I'm thinking about things and sort of being very willing to like let go of things and move to other things that seem better. And so I think there are like a lot of things where it just matters whether you're right or wrong and trying to float freely with the evidence and end up at places that are, you know, maybe weird or surprising to people, but like end up being good bets. I think that's what sort of a lot of my life has been pointed towards. So let's, um, like stepping back a little bit when we say right or wrong, I guess a specific context, um, I often see sort of rationality talked about um, in the context of, okay, you're making a forecast, you're making a prediction about the future, or you have some working model of like a mechanism or a system, and you are attempting to make judgments about the future of that model or that system. And then you're evaluating right and wrong from there. Is that is that a kind of, what when we say it matters whether you're right and wrong, what do you think, in what context does it matter? Yeah, I think that's an easy one to look at. Like I'm looking at your bookshelf and I see the uh, super forecasting book is up there. Where I think there are lots of things that happen now where there's something that's coming and you would like to know which way it will go so that you can plan for it. And for some things like the weather, we just can make predictions and very quickly learn if they're right or wrong. And we can sort of use empiricism to like just figure out what works and what doesn't. For other things, they might only happen once, like you might only ever have one 2016 election and that might have huge impacts. And so it like helps to be thinking about the future in a way that you expect to go well without updating on the results before you see it. Uh, that's that's a poor way to express it. I mean something closer to you want to build a model so that you can wring the most information out of the limited data that you do have. I think I've ended up, I don't know, We maybe we've talked a little about futurism. You mentioned the Machine Intelligence Research Institute. Sort of the basic thing behind that part of my career was the sense that at some point we're going to make super intelligent machines this is either going to go very well for us or very poorly for us, um, but probably we're also only going to do that once. And so it would be nice if we got it right the first time around. And how, I guess, did thinking, what came first, an interest in AI or an interest in rationalism as a framework? 
Yeah, I think for me personally, it was an interest in rationalism as a framework. When I was in high school, I like took computer science classes because I wanted to make video games. And at some point, I discovered that if you write things on computers, you write the wrong things, and I just did not want to spend my life dealing with bugs. And so I switched to going into physics. And you know, after, I guess this was midway through college, I realized that there was sort of no escaping from computers, right? Wherever you went, software was the way that you were going to do the thing. And so I like turned back to it and took it seriously and tried to actually get good at it and mostly succeeded. I think from an early age, there was this sense that the thing that set me apart from like other kids was something related to thinking. And that sort of just fed into like that made me more interested in it. And it sort of like spiraled from there. And so I think there's actually some posts from me on Less Wrong from like 10 years ago where I'm sort of like, why would anybody care about this AI stuff? Or like, why would people take it seriously? Um, I sort of had this sense that someone else would be more worried about it than I was. And so I could sort of like free ride on their worry. And, you know, then years later looked at it more closely and was like, oh no, actually, like <laughs> there's no one to free ride on here. <laughs> like if, if I want something to be done about this, like I also should show up. Interesting. Um, uh, and so I guess what was your, I guess the beginning of your exposure to less wrong and the community. And maybe I just think it's kind of interesting to kind of parse the name less wrong. First of all, yeah, like, yeah. the story starts on the XKCD forums. And so XKCD is this web comic. Um, I don't remember their tagline. I think it's like science, math, romance, and language or something. But anyway, great web comic, like foundational part of nerd culture in the two thousands and so on. I was, I think at one point the like fifth or had like the fifth most comments on the XKCD forums. And, you know, I'm, I'm a high school student. I like love arguing with people on the internet. Um, I'm like one of the resident libertarians on the forum or something. And like, that's this constant source of, you know, people to argue with who are like very firmly convinced either, you know, to the left or the right or so on. I do sometimes wonder if I got into that just that I could like argue with everybody, but I like, I think that's not right. So you don't, not just contrarianism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So the thing that I noticed later sort of in retrospect was that I had very much been focused on the XKCD forums in or winning arguments. And the thing that happened when I moved to less wrong was sort of moving away from, okay, how do I score points? How to make the other person look bad? How do I like maneuver around their like attempts to hit me or whatever is sort of moving the focus inward and doing something closer to, okay, in any encounter that I have with someone else, can I figure out a way that I'm being wrong in this encounter so that I can try to be less wrong in the future? There's a bunch of psychological research into intelligence and rationality. Um, one of the things that I find somewhat surprising, like originally, but then it makes sense in retrospect, um, is that the correlation between them is actually moderately low. It's like only 0 0.3 or so. The correlation between? Between the measures that we have of intelligence and the measures that we have of rationality. The story that I tell for this is there are some mistakes that you can like only make if you're very clever. 
right? Because then you can like argue yourself into that mistake. And if anyone tries to convince you that the mistake is wrong, you can just like defeat them in argument using your like finely honed, you know, mm -hmm. verbal abilities or whatever. And a huge part of less wrongs sort of like culture or philosophy or something is about taking this ability to, you know, use intelligence to analyze arguments and win them and so on. And rather than using it to protect yourself, use it to like refine yourself. How did you move? So I, I think that we're obviously living in a age of extreme polarization um, and living in a place where it is very difficult. I think it's always been difficult to be publicly wrong. Um, it, it requires a level of uh, equanimity to some degree to be publicly wrong. And we also have um, sort of uh, industrialized conflict at this point where we basically are kind of producing an endless uh, amount of talking heads that are arguing with each other. And either one of these talking heads admitting a flaw in their logic or uh like seeding a meta point from their from their opponent um, is a loss of face. Um, and in, in many ways, I think that a lot of our discussion in general around controversial topics uh, just turns into a personal version of talking heads. Um, what allows you or what made you interested in kind of um, is it is it to some degree putting down the sword of of like of debate as in no longer trying to win? What made you feel like that was a good direction to go in? I think at some point I was introduced to this idea of the like personal is the political, or maybe it's the other way around. Um, and there's a different sort of contrasting approach, which is like politics as um, debate or as sport or something where this is sort of the old idea of you could have people who ferociously disagree on, you know, how the world is, but they like look at each other and they're like, Oh yeah, this person is like honest and just and a fun debating partner. And so on. I don't have a great sense if I had been born 10 years later and grown up with the media of like 10 years later or so on, if I would have turned out the same way. Um, in particular, I think my approach of being like wrong on the internet came from my experiences sort of like being wrong at school, by which I mean something like if I was in class and the teacher said something and it sounded wrong to me and I like raised my hand or blurted out or whatever, um, I think over the course of my educational career, I was wrong something like less than 4% of the time. And like the rest of the time, you know, it was like the teacher that was wrong. And so this turned out to be, you know, a great way for me to score points, like with myself at least. Um, and also this like worked out really well for me in that the times when I was confused or was mistaken or so on, it like got fixed immediately. As opposed to, you know, later with me puzzling over my notes or so. Um, but I remember talking to someone else who had basically asked me like, hey, like, you know, when you ask questions, like what's your strategy for asking questions or so on. And looking at this other person being like, mm, you know, I have definitely calibrated to this, you know, uh, level of correctness that I have relative to my inputs. And if it were, you know, 20% of the time that I was wrong, I probably would raise my hand much more slowly, right? Or like be much less. I think it's easier for me to 
also do this sort of thing by not caring much about many traditional policies. I don't know, like as a libertarian and a generally pacifistic sort of person, I like wish we hadn't gone to war in Iraq. I wish we weren't in most of the wars that we're in now. But also this just wasn't that much or that big a deal for me personally. And so I didn't sort of like get involved with that sort of politics where many people that I knew would feel strongly about it one way or the other. Um, Similarly, I think most of the hot button issues that are happening now, I like might have a take, but I have sort of this nuanced understanding of what's going on. And my take is mostly about how to bridge between people as opposed to, oh, obviously, you know, side A is right and side B is wrong and so on. Um, Even then, I find it punishing instead of rewarding to talk about these things online. One of the reasons is that people will be offended by whatever you say because they're like not in this to try and figure things out. They're in this to score points or do whatever other thing. Um, Another reason is, you know, I have what, like 300 friends on Facebook, let's say. Even if I convince all of those friends who live in the SF that, you know, a particular housing policy is like the right one or the wrong one, we're not going to swing any elections in SF. And there's a sense that there are some things where not very many people are thinking about it or working on it or doing stuff. And there I can sort of expect to have an impact. And in other things, sort of the number of people interested is much harder. So it's like not a neglected issue. And also the issue is much less less tractable because it's less likely that you, you know, think of something new and that's useful. And it's more likely that people have thought of all the angles already. To to challenge you here, I'm I'm curious because you and I are about the same age. You and I lived through uh, the era of like homosexuality becoming normalized. You're gay. You had skin in the game. Like that's that's an area where the attitudes towards that aspect of your identity in middle school versus now, tremendous change. And I'm curious if in looking of that at that cultural change or that political change, do you still, are you able to similarly to remain as objective um, and as sort of evaluative of the, of the trade-offs? Yeah, I think, I wish I knew more about the experience of being gay earlier, right? Um, I remember coming across a fascinating book, which I wish I I picked it up in the you know university bookstore when I was an undergrad, and I read like three pages of it, and then I set it down, so I'll never find this book again. But um, it was this fascinating book about the um, experience of homosexuality in America being shaped by people's experiences in World War II. And um, one of my favorite facts about San Francisco is one of the reasons that this city is so queer is because... This is where the Navy discharged people um, who, like, ran afoul of that regulation. So there's a part of me that imagines, you know, the me of 80 years ago or whatever. Um, Maybe he has some gay experiences, but he probably marries some woman and settles down and just, like, lives his quiet, you know, closeted life or whatever. And I definitely think I am better off than the me of 80 years ago. But I think that this is like one facet of his life and one facet of my life. And quite possibly, like, one of the things that I think has been a big struggle for me 
probably also a big struggle for you is dealing with um, wanting to buy a house and yet land prices are crazy and the ability to develop things is nearly non-existent and so on and so on. It's actually not obvious to me whether I would trade being able to be like open about being gay and like be dating a man that I love a bot or sorry, love a lot um, openly up against being able to buy a house Mm. and not just me buy a house, but like everyone else in my age group. Obviously there's not a trade-off between those in actual fact, like we could just have, you know, liberal social mores and also solid development policies or something. But I think it's important to not view like some political successes and some political failures, like to either just look at the successes or just look at the failures. But I think I dodged your challenge a little. And so now I'm going to come back around to your challenge. Fair enough. So you said, hey, there's this issue that affects you directly. Can you really like let go of politics? Right. And my response was like, well, there are lots of issues that affect me directly. And by letting go of politics, I've sort of let go of all of them. But I think that there's a different thing that I am like very worried about and is sort of shifting my sense of how much we should or shouldn't ignore politics, which is this idea of evaporative cooling. So this is a thing that um, happens in like actual liquids and also is interesting to think about for like social groups. Um, Basically, you have all these atoms or molecules bopping around. The ones that are going the fastest, the ones that are like carrying the most energy, are the most likely to sort of leave the liquid and like go off into the gas. And so as you just leave this thing here, because the most energetic ones are leaving, it's like getting colder. And the colder it is, the more likely other things are to leave and so on. And so if I say, hey, I have better things to do with my time than look at politics, as more and more people think that, and as politics becomes sort of more and more polarized and harsh and so on, um, that drives out further people who like now, you know, the temperature of politics is too bad for them and so on. And then we end up with sort of this, you know, deadlocked politics that can't do anything useful. And all, also, all of the ideas are outside of the politics. Right? That's right. Like all that's, that's right. left there is tribes and like any sort of innovation is occurring outside of that. And I mean, I think that that's potentially a fair description of where we where we are. Does that motivate you to think about, you know, a lot of your time is spent thinking about issues on a time scale, which people, most people are not thinking about, right? Most people are not considering the time scale of centuries um, or really of decades, really. Multiple decades is a rare time scale for most people. Exceptions might be people concerned with climate change and stuff like that. There obviously are issues that people are sort of thinking about in those timescales. But politics is often a process of the immediate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it is also often very combative. It is often the art of that very type of engagement that you kind of eschewed from a very young age. And yet that kind of tactical work is at least ideally serving the purposes of a larger strategy. So ultimately, these ideas about, for instance, AI, and I'd love to, let's dive into those in just mm-hmm, a minute. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, the device by which these ideas become implemented or real 
must be this very tactical. What do you think of that? Yeah. So there's a idea from systems design, which is a complicated system that works, has at its heart a simple system that works. And I think there's a thing that I personally fall prey to a lot, which is sort of imagining things from scratch. And many people who think about politics, there's sort of this version where you could look at San Francisco and say like, oh, what if our building code was like Tokyo's building code? What if our taxation was Georgia's taxation? You know, sort of just like drawing on the city as if it didn't exist. And there's a different version that looks at it and says, okay, you know, here are the actual four people who are running for, you know, city council in my district or whatever. And viewing them as like real people in the world, like probably you could get your their phone number if you tried hard enough or like schedule a conversation with them if you tried hard enough or so on. Um, or if you tried hard enough, you know, you could be person number five on that list or so on. And there's something about this mode of thinking about politics that I find deeply uh, unsatisfying. Mm -hmm. And so here I think I'm like doing something that's, you know, satisfying me emotionally instead of, you know, doing whatever is you know practically useful by sort of looking at this and saying like, oh, this isn't for me. Um, it's like not where your brain likes to rest. It's not where your brain finds its engagement or its expansion. Yeah. Something like that. Um, I think there are lots of other things that I do despite it not being where my brain likes to rest. And the thing that I'm starting to come around to is this idea that's like, oh, maybe I do actually have a like civic responsibility here of some sort that even if I, or sorry, rather than doing the fun sort of arguing about politics, which I like mostly discarded as like actually not that great entertainment years ago, um, doing the sort of like boring but necessary work, um, I think there's another approach to this sort of thing, which is to rather than like try yourself to like do a thing that you think will have some small impact, um, try to figure out a system that like would have a good impact here. Um, I think actually one of my favorite examples of this is the Koch brothers 30 years ago or whatever. Um, gave a bunch of money to a university to set up a center for libertarian economists to work. And this turned out to be very intellectually productive. The people that uh, ended up working there, very intellectually productive. And also I think in large part because they were given a bunch of money to do this sort of thing. And these were people who wouldn't have gotten positions elsewhere quite possibly. And so this is the sort of thing that is really not immediate, right? Like it probably took 20 years for this thing to pay for itself. But I think now by this point it has paid for itself. And you can imagine similar things where people put money into building the right sort of systems, getting the right sort of people to work on these things in ways that, you know, will only pay off far down the line. And so what do you see as the points of leverage? What, when you think about what's going to pay off far down the line, what are the areas in which you are willing to deploy your energies, where that sense comes more naturally? Yeah, so I think, I think when I think about my personal energies, there is a thing that I think I'm pretty good at, which is taking a complicated issue 
or like various people's um, takes on an issue and trying to like read them very carefully and get a very like clear idea of like how all the concepts fit together and then hopefully being able to explain those concepts. And so I think I did an okay job of this when it comes to, you know, thinking about existential risks and, you know, the strategies surrounding this and so on. I think I have less of a sense that I'm able to do this for the sort of political problems that are facing America. Um, But it wouldn't surprise me if for at least some of them, there like is a thing to be done here. One of the questions that I have is how much there's room for, I'm going to call it technological innovation in politics um, versus the issue is sort of just this like tug of war. Mm -hmm. Um, An example of this is in California, there's this, I think it's Prop 13, but I don't remember the actual number. The one but that uh, prevents taxes from rising. It caps the rate of tax increase right. on properties. Yeah. Yeah. And as a result, you have basically like the government is rewarding you for staying in one property right. for longer. Yeah, This is the sort of thing that, I don't know, once you've sort of like skewed the market, it just keeps getting skewed and any attempt to just immediately unskew it is going to, you know, unbalance things horribly for a lot of people. And there's someone, um, I think this is Scott Wiener, who's a local California politician who's proposed some bill to basically patch this to stop it from getting worse while not making any of the current beneficiaries of it worse off. And I, I don't follow politics closely enough to let you know if this succeeded or failed. And this is probably years out of date at this point or something. But this is the sort of thing where this feels to me like an example of, you know, thinking cleverly about the problem and coming up with something that like doesn't really make it hugely better, but it at least like stops it from getting worse. Right. And it wouldn't surprise me if for many issues that we see around, there is this sort of thing where, Oh, if you, um, think cleverly about it, you can figure out a way to make it at least not worse. I think when I look at the polarization, though, and I ask myself, okay, what's going to happen over the course of decades or centuries or so on? There's this thing where America is actually like quite weird by the standards of history or the standards of the rest of the world. Often we think of America as a young country, but in fact, in terms of the way that the government is organized, America is one of the oldest countries currently in existence, right? Like Continual governance by, a, by the same system. Yeah, yeah, right? that's right. Like yeah. you, you might look at China and say like, oh, China is thousands of years old. Mm-hmm. Or you might say, oh, actually, like the Chinese Civil War was only, you know, 80, 90 years ago right. or so on. And the sort of democracy that America is actually has a quite bad track record around the world you know, you'll have basically collapsing into dictatorship or coups or, you know, whatever other horrible outcomes. And it's not obvious to me if the things that make America, like, special and different from all these other presidential democracies that were true for the last, you know, 200 years or so on, how much I expect them to still be true of the next, you know, 10 years, 20 years, 200 years. You're saying true about the the kind of ecosystem or true about the systems? 
Um, I think the systems, but maybe the ecosystem is the right level or level to look at here. Um, yeah, it's it's not obvious to me how much of the stuff that's going on for us is sort of like contingent facts of the particular way that we shook out. Or if you could look at, you know, a thousand alien worlds that are all going through like roughly what you're going through, you're like, ah, yes. And that's the point at which social media and democracy like start to interact. One of the things I've noticed, and this is particularly relevant for the the kind of ongoing culture war, um, is viewing the culture war as a process of reaching better rhetoric. It's almost like a process of rhetorical weapons. Um, one side of the political aisle has developed a rhetorical method of attack on the other, and the other suffers sort of wounds in the short term, but then develops a countermeasure to that rhetorical attack. And the result is kind of a uh, tete-a-tete that sort of converges towards a stable strategy for both sides. And that kind of intra-group comp- competition, uh, I would argue we are kind of in the middle of and what I'm thinking of specifically is the, uh, for instance, the uh, uh, Patreon being kind of uh, was very successful and then it, it was uh, canceled. The um, a number of other sort of platforms have been, I guess, 8chan, et cetera, et cetera. There's been a number of things that have sort of like fallen as victim to the specific sort of mode of rhetorical attacks. And now we have, for instance, Substack which may be something that actually survives. Um, And there's almost this sort of selective pressure on the kinds of platforms or the kinds of things that are sort of allowed to exist uh, that is formed as a result of that competition. And I think that governance is similar. Like, although its evolution is much, much more gradual. And this is sort of playing across across the ideas of, um, I think it's Heinrich, the idea of um, the fact that culture itself is an evolutionary agent, um, that it, it, it itself is uh, taking in new DNA, as it were, from this sort of co- uh, competitive process between cultures. Um, and this, when I sort of think about like the ecosystem of competing entities, this is sort of the, the framework that I kind of think about is like, okay, what mutations are going to be selected for given the nature of competition between these entities right now? And um, what are the kind of selective pressures um, that we are being subjected to by the ecosystem? And technology in many ways is almost like that selective pressure. It's like the environment coming down on us. And the human mechanisms, the human technologies that we use to interface or uh, work around that new uh, force uh, seems to be kind of what we're going through. We're, We're kind of, we're needing to evolve our human systems to meet the changing ecosystem. Yeah, I think I've been listening to this lecture series by John Verveke called Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. Um, where I think he has a very human-centric approach, like the one that you described, where he's interested in basically like how can we evolve the people to, you know, be more wise, be more able to handle the world that they're living in and so on. I think that for many of these things, um, technological problems have technological solutions. An example that I'm thinking of here is for climate change, you know, we got the ability to burn many more things that are made out of carbon. And 
at some point we figured out that this was a problem and that didn't stop us. At some point we tried to coordinate on a solution to this problem and again that didn't you know stop like the coordination failed. And to the extent that there has been success in the fight against climate change, I think it's primarily that semiconductors have gotten so much cheaper and so solar has gotten so much more widespread. And other, you know, things contributed also, obviously, like wind power has gotten much better and various other things. But basically, it feels to me like the investments that we've done into increasing our technological capability to get renewable power has mostly, or that's been where most of the gains have come from. And in a world where technological development of fossil fuels had gone even better, I expect we would have seen less adoption sources of power. When I think about the social version of this, I was thinking about the dynamic of selling out. Um, actually, so there, there's a few different dynamics that I talk. Anything that I have noticed, I sometimes watch dance videos on the internet. There's a way in which dance in the 2020s feels more alien to me than dance from like the 1940s or so on. Um, there are a lot of movements that people will do, not because they appeal to sort of like the naive audience, but because they appeal to the sophisticated audience, right? Another dancer watching this video will know, oh, that was a difficult move that they just pulled off. Or like, oh, wow, you know, the control in being able to, you know, do this so precisely or so on. And I think a thing that has happened is that politics and debate and similar things used to be more like this, the, the sort of culture that like didn't like sellouts. And so people cared more about how does my take land with sort of my most intelligent friends or my most intelligent adversaries, actually. You know, there's there's this sort of like debate club that you could do where you like get points by being clever in ways that even your opponents are like, ah, yes, that was clever. You know, also you have various people who are interested in, you know, whatever cultural product that's being made here. Maybe someone has, you know, these very spicy tacos that they make. And the people who love spicy tacos, you know, flock to this thing. And normally are worried when this gains more mainstream like appeal, because as more people come to the spicy taco place, well, the more mainstream the audience is, the less they actually like the spiciness of the tacos or so on. And so the more that the taco stand is financially rewarded for making, you know, milder and milder versions of the thing. Similarly, I worry that there's been this thing where sort of for politics or morality or group affiliation or for many of these other things, there's been this selling out that I think normally is called like dumbing down, um, where now rather than this question of, okay, are you doing this in the sophisticated way? It's like, well, you know, we have this very simple good guys versus bad guys and we're looking for people who are bad guys to just throw out or so on. 
So I, I can definitely understand where the perception comes from. But whenever mm-hmm. we say things about things changing over time, I always like to check myself because mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like, we have a very limited sample slice of what we uh, lived through, obviously. And our view of how politics or anything used to be tends to be somewhat romanticized or sort of colored through the lens of how that history has been presented. Um, and so I'm challenging that thesis in my own brain. I'm thinking, okay, was politics uh, less uh, less dumbed down? Was it more intelligent uh, if we went back 100 years? And I'm not sure. Um, like I, I think that maybe the elements that we, the relics of politics that we see now would probably be most likely to be the most intelligent versions. It would probably be the things that have been left by the intellectuals for other intellectuals. There were also gangs beating people up in the streets. Yeah, let, let me extend this a little further. Let's talk like 500 years back or so on. Um, I think the thing that would happen then, you know, when I imagine my like English peasant from 1500, is their views on politics are sort of very simplistic. Actually, let's let's say my French peasant, because I think England was slightly different. Um, you know, their views on politics are going to be like, God save the king, and probably also like the Germans are terrible, or whatever. And I think the thing that I'm pointing at is not so much that the like average person's sense of politics has grown less sophisticated. I think actually probably it's grown more just because of general technological increase in knowledge and wealth and so on. I think the thing that's happened is we've moved from fewer people having relevant opinions on politics, let's say, to more people having relevant opinions on politics. The way that I want to look at this is sort of the difference in not consumers of politics, but producers of politics, Mm -hmm. where, you know, sure, the, you know, French voter today is much more sophisticated than the, you know, French peasant of 500 years ago. But the person who's constructing political attitudes in the France of 500 years ago versus the France of today, probably, you know, the the modal person doing this then was like the local priest or, you know, the mayor or some sort of, you know, authority figure like looking down who mostly feels like they have to answer to the other like elites around them. Whereas I think now there's much more of a sense that actually, you know, maybe half of people are sort of like creating political content in this way. The production of this content has become more democratized or that's right popularized. And Maybe it's just a law of averages by virtue of more people doing it. The average value of that thing has gone down. This is a model that I have. There are bits of this that I find unsatisfying. Um, When you read Europeans' accounts of early America, they were sort of astonished at the level of sort of average sophistication. Right, they would talk about you know farmhands like buying books and various other things. That is this, this probably like Tocqueville's yeah, yeah, this, of America. This is, yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, and this sort of doesn't jive with the story that I'm telling here. I also think that there are other causes of polarization that are just very different from the story that I'm telling here, but that maybe make more sense. An example of this is. I think it was Ezra Klein wrote this article about polarization in America where he claims that actually we're at like 
regular levels of polarization now. And the um, low levels of polarization that we had from like World War II to the, I think the 70s is roughly when you put it. That was actually the exceptional time. That was the exceptional time. And the exception was caused by, in part, this like reversal between the parties where rather than having these like very well separated parties that could oppose each other effectively, you had um, this like weird mixture. I think mostly he attributes it to racism. Yeah, the where, civil rights movement. Yeah, right. right. Yeah. Um, where you had you know Republicans in the North and the South had very different policy preferences, and Democrats in the North and the South had very different policy preferences. And so you know when you look at it by party, the like averages are much closer together. I think I want to return here to a theme from before, which is this idea of, you know, technological problems have technological solutions. A thing about our current system of governance is that it's pretty optimized for the informational logistical problems of 300 years ago. And I think we've developed new things since then. My favorite example here is this idea called liquid democracy. Hmm. which are better suited to the problems that we have now. What is liquid um, democracy? So, yeah, the, the basic idea there is you have a vote and you can transfer this vote to other people. And so you would end up with something like every bill in Congress is voted on by everyone. But... I, as someone who doesn't care very much about this, will have researched like, okay, who do I think is, you know, just has better political taste than I do? And then I would say like, ah, okay, I'm going to just hand this person my vote. And, you know, if enough people hand you their votes, then it becomes like worth it for you to spend all your time thinking about this thing and like voting on all of these things. And this is a very simplistic description of it. There are like more complicated versions and, you know, Many of the things that look immediately obviously wrong about this, like someone has thought of that, there is a solution to it and so on. But here we're back to a thing that I brought up yet, like even earlier of, I don't know, my temptation when looking at these things is to find a way to just build it from scratch the right way. Right. And... Which it, to me reminds me uh, of the kind of naive engineer coming in, looking at an old system and being like, oh, I can do better. Like I can, um, I can just rebuild this from scratch with, I guess, no time in the trenches and no, I guess, appreciation for what has resulted as like an evolved system, right? Like of which, which kind of accumulates scar tissue. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. and so uh, zooming, zooming out a little bit, actually, like thinking about, um, the political system is very much something that was clearly designed 300 years ago, right? Mm-hmm. And was designed with a knowledge of what was available technologically and what was available geographically, what was available like ethically in terms mm-hmm. of like mm-hmm. present at the time. Um, and since then, we've had to basically, you know, gradually evolve this technological system, this piece of human technology to kind of meet new constraints. Is there a point where the selective pressure breaks it? breaks the model. And what does that actually look like? Uh, is that where maybe this ties into like larger sort of existential concerns? Yeah. So I think there's two different models that I want to give of systems breaking like this. Um, one of them, 
actually comes from um, immune system evolution. And it's this idea of like changing the locks. And the basic idea here is you'll have, you know, for your immune system or whatever, you know, you and your spouse have a child. You want this, the like various parasites and pathogens and so on that have been infecting you and have been sort of like co-evolving with your immune system to not immediately have like a head start on infecting the child. And so the thing that happens is there's this roughly password that you can use to recognize whether cells are yours or not. And it's just, you know, randomly shuffled generation to generation. And there's a bunch of long running systems that will have some way to sort of sort, you know, who's good and who's bad. And the longer you keep the sorting mechanism the same, the more the errors in your sorting mechanism sort of like float to the top. Accumulate. Kind That's of, right. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, yeah, it's, you know, people have time to figure out the strategies mm -hmm. that work. Um, you could imagine like our tech system has a bunch of loopholes if they sort of just randomly shifted every year what the tax system was, you know, it would might, you know, perhaps people wouldn't be able to, you know, react quickly enough. Um, this also would mean that the tax system can't do the things that they want it to do, which is, you know, change behavior because people are thinking about how this will affect them or so. But I think a lot of systems that have worked for a long time involve significant, you know, periodic reforms of this sort. You look at the Roman Republic and there's a thing that I find weird about it with my like engineer brain where, you know, every, you know, 40 years, 50 years, whatever, somebody will institute a bunch of reforms to like, you know, rearrange how the military does things. And their technology really wasn't changing that quickly, right? Like they, they've got swords here and swords there. And, yeah. you know, this is a little unfair to the amount that they actually are improving, but as far as I can tell, mostly the thing that was happening is a bunch of people like got promoted through nepotism and various other things to places beyond their competence yeah. and needed to be shuffled out and replaced with new people. I Go would ahead. think of it almost as sort of like bureaucratic ossification. That's right. right. That's yeah. right. And so we, in that, you know, if we were in the Roman Republic, we might propose a system which deliberately shuffled every 40 years, as opposed to requiring this to accumulate um, the sort of political weight that was necessary for, oh, an emperor or a, you know, uh, leader of the Republic needs to be sufficiently powerful such as to motivate these things. Um, we could make it so that that happened by design every so often. And that's sort of the model that representative democracy has done with the four-year, max, max eight-year sort of terms and things like that. We've imposed these sort of deliberate points um, but nonetheless, we still see plenty of bureaucratic or system ossification, like, and it has costs, but it also, it has its own legacy, its own sort of history of evolution. Um, and I, so to, to kind of bring this to uh, an issue that I think you spent a lot of your, you have spent a lot of your career mm -hmm. working with, um, if we're thinking about uh existential threats, um, like AI, like, uh, the, like global warming, things like this. Um, it would seem that there is a mismatch between the constraint and the ability of our human technologies to meet that constraint. Um, and I, and I guess back to this question of breaking, um, do you think that we will see a breaking? Yeah. So 
I think it will be the case that our political systems are not able to do what we need them to do. I think there's a way in which you can already make this case that, you know, we've passed some points of no return for climate change. Um, although I think most of that reasoning is underselling the ability of technology to solve various problems there. I think that I want to expand a little on what I mean by existential risk and why I think AI might be one. I think of human history, there's sort of being a steering wheel and you, know, you can imagine many people having their hands on the steering wheel at once, and so it's not like any one person is sort of you know, able to direct everything. But different people have had more or less influence on you know, how things will go. And the thing that sort of both the promise and the threat of AI is that you will have much more thinking much more cheaply. And... Thinking is both really good because it helps you solve problems and also in some ways it's bad because it lets you like self-deceive yourself or self-destroy yourself or so on. Anything that I expect to happen as sort of just my mainline prediction of what happens is at some point somebody makes a artificial system that's smarter than they are. They hand control over to it because I don't know, like why else would you build this thing except to let it direct some things? And you can tell like short violent stories, you can tell slower, like more peaceful stories, but basically the steering wheel goes from having mostly human hands on it to having mostly robotic hands on it. And maybe this goes well if the robots are doing the right thing. Like, in fact, you know, many of the stories that we've been telling here are about how humans can't coordinate to solve various problems, but you could imagine that we could build systems that could in fact coordinate to solve these problems. But quite possibly people will not have thought ahead carefully enough. And instead of it being the sort of robots that we would want to be running things, it's sort of randomly selected robots. So while I expect there to be some sort of sudden shift where you go from, you know, uh, the like relevant militaries are like the U.S. Army and other things to uh, the relevant militaries are, you know, the swarms of robots or so on, I think you also can see gradual versions of this. A thing that some people are very worried about is um, the ability of synthetic content to affect democracies. And deep fakes, things like that. Deep fakes are one example of this. Um, a simple thing from many years ago was someone built a Twitter bot that just, it was powered by like a flowchart, but it would find, you know, tweets that people were saying things about climate change. And it would sort of figure out where they were in the flowchart, and then it would argue with them. And, you know, it wasn't a very clever Twitter bot. I don't know how many people are actually convinced, but it became the sort of thing where, at least as I, you know, heard the story, if you were trying to tweet about climate change and you tweeted, like, false or misleading things, someone was there, you know, with a correction. You can imagine the, you know, GPT-5 version of this, which is something like, you know, you're just called on the phone or you like get texts or so on by someone who's trying to convince you of a particular thing. And probably this level of like personal attention and, you know, whatever sophisticated argumentative ability, um, this could convince people of not anything, but it would be, you know, sort of the activist's dream. And, you know, 
there are various defense systems for this. Probably most people would like turn off their phones. Um, but if like one group got it quickly enough that they could like get their issue across the finish line, um, it depends a lot or on how good or bad this is sort of like who gets that or like what we do there. There's also a way in which, um, I think a lot of people would lose faith in democracy at that point or something. One of the things that I found somewhat striking after the 2016 election was how much I think people like, at least among my friend group, how much people shifted from thinking like democracy is obviously good to like, Oh, actually like many people aren't taking their votes seriously enough or, you know, some variation on that. Or like, I guess the same way that we often feel about jury votes, like, you know, decisions made by groups of our peers. And we're like, really? Like, <laughs> yeah, that that's actually interesting because one of my, you know, political issues that I care about a little is, um, Jury duty is just a very inefficient form of taxation. Uh, it's one of the very few sorts of corvée labor that are still around, and I think just destroys tremendous amount of value compared to having professional jurors who just know what the law is and how to apply it and have you know training in this sort of thing. A consistent story that I hear from people that are on jury duty or you know have experience with it or so on is that people just really want to do well, but it's like they're only like compared to things that we take seriously where people like go to school and they do it every day, like a thing that you do once every five years or so on, you just really can't get the feedback loop that you would need to actually be good at the thing. Sure. Just um, like doing your taxes. Right. Right. Um, <laughs> once a year, you don't remember any of the rules. <laughs> right. Right. Um, and this is why we have professional accountants who will do your taxes for you. And because they, you know, think about this all the time, they know how to do the thing and it goes fine. Specialization of labor. It's a good idea. We should do it more. And is this is me going off on a tangent, but jury duty came up because of this jury of your peers question where you might not want to be judged by a jury of your peers in the same way that you don't want like to be operated on in the surgery by like a surgeon of your peers or so on. Like, no, I want the specialist. So, to, so and this kind of returns back to the idea of liquid democracy, which is have somebody who is plugged in to vote on your behalf, right? Like, yeah, like a professional voter would be that instantiated for for electoral politics. That's right. And there's yeah. there's a way in which, you know, your representative in Congress is a professional voter in the sense you're the city councilman is a professional voter in the sense. And I think the main thing that you would hope for with something like liquid democracy is closer to the. Yeah, because you can't really hope, you know, oh, this is going to make GPT-5 fine. Because, in fact, now the things that GPT-5 is doing is arguing that you should give your vote to Alice instead of Bob or so on. There are different configurations that we could do that would make some things work a little better. One of the things that I'm, I'm not quite sure how to put this, but I'm going to say dissatisfied with in the way that our current system works is even if, you know, people who want to just throw a brick at the system elect someone like Trump, there's just really, like, the system is sort of, like, too entrenched for the brick to actually land. Um, my understanding of what happened with the Trump administration is basically a bunch of posts went unfilled. A bunch of people, like, just didn't do their jobs or did their jobs poorly. But we didn't really see any major systemic change. 
And even if Trump had wanted specific major systemic changes, like one of the reasons you might think this didn't happen is because he like didn't really care. He like just wanted to, you know, be the biggest gorilla in the No, dude, it was the deep state. It was definitely the deep state. Well, so there's there's a way in which the thing that I'm complaining about here is something deep state flavored, which is like rather than Congress making laws, often the thing that Congress will do is it will make an agency that then will like promulgate regulations. And if you, you know, for whatever crazy reason, think like, ah, you know, hydrochloroquine or whatever the drug actually was, you know, will solve this pandemic. There's not a way in which you can executive order this into being a like approved drug, right? Like in fact, the FDA makes this decision to the extent that the Trump administration was able to pressure the FDA. They like got these vaccines out sooner, but even then sooner is very different from what's technologically possible. There's a, a thing I'm circling here, which I'm, not quite sure how to express, but I think your point earlier that we have a system which has sort of internalized this idea of like revolution and change and evolution, I think is doing something that's happening with systems more broadly, which is sort of flattening out variation, but paying for it in occasional rare shocks. Um, This is something that economists talk about with the, um, the Federal Reserve where, you know, beforehand we had lots of short depressions and afterwards we have, you know, a small number of long depressions. And it's like not clear if you're better off one way or the other. Um, A thing that's happening in California is for many years we had, you know, very few fires and now we're sort of paying for it with like lots of fires. There are other things also going on. Climate change is a big contributor here. Um, Various regulatory changes in the last few years are also contributors here. But um, this basic idea of, you know, forestry management where either you have some controlled burns or you have, you know, a few, or I'm sorry, either you have many controlled burns or you have a few uncontrolled burns. I think there's a similar thing going on. And part of me is just very worried that America is like pointed towards a political uncontrolled burn Mm -hmm. of one sort or another. And it's like hard to know how much we should care about that from the perspective of centuries. There's a lecture that I really like by Stephen Davies, which is called uh, two versions of history. Maybe it's two views of history, but um, the basic conceit is he starts off with like a list of numbers on like one blackboard and in an audience of like 40 people or so on, um, at least one person will know all of the numbers because they're all like historical dates of some sort, right? Like, you know, 1945. Ah, yeah when World War II ended, you know, 1776. Ah, yeah, when the you know Declaration of Independence was signed. So, and the other blackboard, normally one or two of the people will get like four or five of these. And these are all like scientific or technological innovations or um, major sort of like cultural and philosophical or philosophical innovations where, you know, maybe somebody knows that 1848 is when Marx published Das Kapital or... You know, 1776 is when Adam Smith wrote The Wealth of Nations. But, you know, very few people know, like, when Isaac Newton published Principia Mathematica or um, when, you know, Maxwell published the theory of electrodynamics or so on. Or, uh, sorry, electromagnetism. But there's a way in which, from the perspective of centuries, 
electromagnetism being invented in the 1860s is much more important than the American Civil War happening in the 1860s. And so I notice being more interested in these sort of like long-term trends, what we can do about them, less interested in, you know, what's going to happen in America in the next four or five years. Mm -hmm. I think I completely, yeah, I, I buy the idea that, again, back to this sort of model that I've been mentioning over mm-hmm, the course of mm-hmm. our conversation, which is thinking about um, technological innovation as almost like ecosystem level changes mm-hmm. and um, the sort of human systems and sort of the ha- political political fighting as being almost sort of like the tactical moves on the chessboard, mm-hmm. whereas the technological changes are the expansion of the chessboard or the uh, con- contraction, mm-hmm, the changing mm-hmm. topography of right, the chessboard. Right. Um, and I'm similarly very motivated uh, through thinking about that. And I think that maybe one sort of like a joint of this that I think is a source of confusion or interest between us is thinking of the political tactics as part of that continuum. So as opposed to just thinking of it as thinking of the, um, for instance, establishing a system of governance that allows for technological innovation to occur establishing systems of decision-making that allow for, um, you know, professional jurors and things like that. So it's almost as if they're, if we were to look at the, the most localized sort of instantiation of sort of political power, the, the local politician going door to door, motivating their neighborhood to vote for them versus the person who is able to, um, for instance, uh, Project Warp Speed under the Trump administration, which allowed for this r- much more rapid deployment of the vaccine, that is that is actually a very powerful adoption of an incentive structure by a governance structure that is based off of an observation of best practices. It was very much in uh, sort of in scientific sort of uh, lockstep with uh, sort of kind of a, a meeting of this very sort of theoretical concept of the way that sort of uh, of removing risk of uh, increasing positive incentives and things like that and aligning that with a political reality. And I think that I, I, I'm beginning increasingly to view these things as part of a continuum. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that we, in that sort of local, in, in this sort of fist fight of politics and the fist fight of talking heads, it is extremely difficult to kind of keep in mind that these things are ultimately referencing um, the ability to sort of push forward scientific thinking or push forward rational policies, rational policymaking. Um, but I think that for me personally, what connects me to the political is a belief that that is ultimately true, that somewhere this narrative of local, the local sort of political fistfight ultimately does lead back to a decision about whether or not we are going to be able to make better decisions. And that's to me where the rubber meets the road, so to speak, of these ideas. And it seems you're, you are more motivated by the um, ecosystem, by the changing chessboard. Yeah, that seems right. Um... I think, I wonder how much of this is a sort of like self-fulfilling prophecy from my point of view, where I think it's 
this thing where it's easy to do things that you're good at and it's hard to do things that you're bad at. And I don't know, like many people who grew up a nerd or something, when you're like, ah, do you want to enter into a popularity contest? My thought is like, oh, horrible. Um, but also there's a way in which for any of these sorts of things to be done well, there sort of needs to be a person there who will do them well. And one of the things that I have found interesting over the last two years or so on is seeing sort of who shows up to these sort of, um, I almost want to call them reactionary movements, but I mean this in the sense of reacting to um, various, I'm going to say, anti-rational forces. Um, I think that in response to a bunch of um, cancel culture things specifically, more people said, hey, we want to have a like space for sort of like this old debate style, like trying to figure out what policies are good by trying to actually persuade each other. And Substack, I believe um, there's a persuasion community or something on Substack, which is like relatively popular and is targeted this sort of thing. A thing that I, that keeps me from going too deeply into this sort of thing is thinking about uh, theories of change. So I have this sense of, I don't know, if you're doing the thing for entertainment, fine. Um, if you're doing it because you want the world to be different, you probably should, you know, have a model of how the world will become different because you did the thing that you did. And I don't really buy the theory of change for like arguing with my neighbors or arguing with my housemates or so on. I think I do buy the theory of change for something like putting ideas out there in a way that actually contacts with other people. I don't know, maybe this is the same thing as arguing with my neighbors. I think it's not, but yeah, yeah. it's it's a higher leverage version of that. It's, yeah. yeah what, why do you think it's different? I think it's different because, well, first of all, I think mobilization is much, much easier than persuasion. And so finding people who are 10% from your view and getting them to stand up, like basically they're 90% aligned with you and getting them to move that nine to the 95th percentile and, or, or even just stand with you on a line of 90% agreement is far, far easier than bringing somebody who is 90% opposed to you to 50%. And so I, I often think of politics as being more about mobilization than persuasion. Interesting. So in this view, one thing that I would imagine is people like myself who have said, oh, I don't want to care all that much about politics are sort of like ripe targets where maybe we have very similar views, but, you know, I go from not voting or not knowing who to vote for to voting for the right person. If you like give me the, you know, right. here's who you should vote for an SF card. I think one of the things that I find a little unsatisfying about this view is I think uh, to use a classic Bay Area example, um, I think if you look at renters' interests and landlords' interests, they're quite opposed. But also, I think there are more voters who own property than renters who are voters. And I don't know how true this is. This feels like it shouldn't be true when I just think about like how many people live here who own versus rent or so on. Um, or how many, you know, renters there are crammed into a house versus how many, you know, old people live in a house or so on. But my sense is that pure mobilization strategies, so far at least, haven't actually worked for this sort of thing. 
Um, when I was in college, I was targeted by a bunch of these, you know, get college students to vote strategies. And as far as I can tell, they were like already at saturation, right? Where everybody who wanted to vote, you know, even if you provided them a ride or whatever, was already going to. It sounds to me, though, that you think we're not at saturation. I don't think we're at saturation because I think that um, turnout in elections is uh, has still still changes quite a bit election to election. Mm-hmm. I mean, this past election had more people vote than had ever voted in any election ever. Mm-hmm. Like there was clearly a, a mobilization effort. I really don't think there was much persuasion involved at all. I think it was right. like pure mobilization. And if I think about Obama's success in the presidency, mm-hmm. I think of it as a mobilization. I think of it as a as bringing people that were like headed in that direction philosophically or ethically or intellectually and basically giving them a social movement to be a mm-hmm. part of, giving mm-hmm. them a social context to be a part of. When I was, uh, I worked a little bit on the Beto O'Rourke campaign, mm-hmm. just doing uh, canvassing. I had never done canvassing before, right? but it was just... I was mobilized somehow. And mm-hmm. I don't really know what the magical chemical formula was that got me doing it. But then it became a self-fulfilling sort of prophecy because like I, I began to meet people associated with that. Mm-hmm. I began mm-hmm. to it became I began to have social awards associated with it. Right. So I do think that I, I think that the Bay Area uh, certainly is a is a place where we uh, it's almost puzzling how unmobilized a substantial portion of people here are and i one thing i think about is that in my day-to-day conversations i meet lots of political moderates when Mm -hmm. i go out and like you don't see that expressed in the (laughs) politics here at all Um, it is a place where it seems that many people are interacting with this uh specific city as kind of they're kind of almost just like they still see themselves as surfing through it or mm. get guests through it while the entities that they truly are trying to work on are intended to be global or intended to be international or intended to be, you know, and I think this is related to startup culture as well. Mm-hmm. Like no one in startup culture, at least for the most part, is all that concerned with local politics because they're imagining scale far beyond the Bay Area, right? right? And things like Miri. Like Miri is very much thinking in this potentially centuries-long time frame. The idea of connecting that sort of intellectual space to the local election is sort of, it's almost arbitrary and trivial. Um, But, and so I think that gives people sort of a plausible excuse to say, oh, here, I don't, I'm, I'm not working on this sort of local ecosystem because I'm working on much, much bigger ecosystems. And they're not wrong. Like they're, they're definitely, uh, there is far more leverage in, in terms of global leverage in working mm-hmm. on these big ideas and working on these much, much more scalable institutions. But there is potentially more to be gained in everyday life in terms of quality of life, in terms of price of rent, in terms of things like that, to being engaged in local issues. But people somehow aren't doing it. So a story that I could imagine, um, well, actually, so first, I, I think I agree with your your take that we're not satirized on mobilization. I worry some that, from my read of the literature at least, one of the big drivers of mobilization is um, 
negative emotions are stronger drivers of mobilization. And this somehow feels connected with, you know, increasing polarization, you know, sure. discussion so getting nastier. Social media getting more more divisive or based on clickbaiting and all that sort of stuff. Right, right. right. It's part of the frenzy. Yeah. So when I think about a version of, you know, again, sticking with Bay Area local politics, there's a guy whose tweets I sometimes read called Mike Solana, who... Uh, I'm going to describe him as, you know, tech bro who snapped. And he cares a lot about this stuff, tweets mostly about this stuff. I don't see the theory of change, though, where, like, I I don't think he's going to run for city council. I think most of his friends are not going to give up on their tech jobs to run for city council. Even if they did, it's not obvious to me that they would get you know, a sufficiently high fraction of the vote or so on. And also to the extent that his method of mobilizing people is mostly around picking fights with the city, it feels like this is also going to drive turnout on the other side. Right now it's not just, you know, hey, we would like effective governance. It's, hey, you know, here are these tech millionaires who want to, you know, trash the city that we cherish and kick everybody out and so on and so on. There's a way in which I don't think we were going to get the, like, boring, competent, technocratic governance or so on, you know, without him stirring up fights on Twitter. But I also don't see how we're getting all that much closer to it in this way. I'm curious if you have a take on this. You might follow this more closely than I do. And I, I'll, uh, you know, I'm a very new arrival to the Bay Area, so I have very limited uh, opinions. But uh, maybe one thing I'll share is uh, I go roller skating at, mm-hmm. the, uh, at the Golden Gate Park. And every Sunday there's a roller disco party, nice. uh, which is really fun. And it's put together by the owner of a local business called the Church of Eight Wheels, mm-hmm. um, who... Uh, in the course of the pandemic, moved what an event that was previously a business event in his in his place out to the roller rink in the park, and it has become a gathering point for hundreds of people. Like every Sunday, or over the course of several Sundays, hundreds mm-hmm, of people, mm-hmm. and achieved some degree of like thinginess to the such the effect that the mayor came and spoke there. Oh, nice! Like a month ago. And it was just, to me, like, I guess, indicative of a lot of these things are in some ways self-fulfilling prophecies. Like if somebody believes that it is inconsequential to do X, it is that it is inconsequential right, to do right. X, right? And maybe the class of, uh, of intellectuals and of sort of like techno- technocratic thinkers and system design thinkers think of themselves too much as being outside the system, as observers of the system, as opposed to being of and in the system. Yeah, that seems like a fair assessment. I mean, I know I have this bias, like for sure. And like, it's a comfortable space. It's kind of like being a critic, Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. (laughs) we risk very, we risk very little. And yet we get to like lambast local politics and like local crime as much as we want. Yeah, I think I think there's also a a related thing here. I've talked some about my, you know, desire to sort of just start fresh and like design things from scratch. And there's a way in which this is swapping out the hard problem with the easy problem. 
right? Where the hard problem is, okay, what could you actually get past in real San Francisco in 2021? And instead of solving that difficult problem, which requires me to learn lots of facts about San Francisco, I instead am going to solve a you know math problem that's just much easier, has many fewer moving parts to track. I think one thing that I find, like I'm still like not sold on this all the way, is this idea of um, selection effects, right? Where you talk to lottery winners and they're like, oh yeah, it was a great idea for me to buy a ticket. You talk to, you know, the average person who bought a lottery ticket and it was like, oh, actually it wasn't worth it. Similarly, I do get the sense that for many sorts of social events and social movements and so on, they don't get there. They like peter out one way or the other. I'm thinking of a friend of mine in college who ran for school board and got, I think, like 80 votes or something and did not make it onto the school board. Or Beto didn't win. Right, right. (laughs) Um, And there's an argument here for like, yeah, it's useful to show up and to spend your resources on building an organization that can, you know, grow to fight their organization. But also I think there's something important about like realism and picking fights that you can win. We talked some so far about trying to sort of like tug the rope sideways where I think uh, when I think about the like, you know, barrier landlords versus renters saying like, oh, how do we get more renters to vote is very like buying into this frame. Whereas asking something like, okay, what's the easiest way to make life in the Bay Area better? Probably easiest, which takes into account the like entrenched difficulties is going to look like some, you know, strange new thing, which is like, oh, actually, you know, here's a promising local business that we could do that would like solve a problem for people and make money doing it. Um, Or it'll look like, oh, you know, here's this, you know, weird change that we can make to some, you know, stuck in a corner part of the city that again will like do something useful. Or I guess I'll just make mine and then Mm -hmm, move mm -hmm. down to the peninsula. (laughs) (laughs) Matt, it's been a wonderful conversation. Yeah, I uh, like end conversations with a, a recommendation mm-hmm. of a, a book, a movie, something that you sort of uh, kind of. We, we've mentioned a few things over the course of this conversation. If anyone was listening to this and they were curious as to uh, like wanting to kind of like engage with some of the ideas that we've mentioned here, anything that you would kind of um, put out? Yeah, I think I want to give. One recommendation, which is I've talked sort of like sideways around, you know, oh, there's this existential risk thing. I went a little into like what it is for me. I think there's a book by Toby Ord called On the Precipice, which is about sort of like why as a civilization we should care about this sort of thing and also putting numbers on it. Right. It's one thing to say like, oh, yeah, climate change will happen sometime. It's another thing to say, okay, here are the impacts that we expect at these various points. Um, I feel like I want to give many more recommendations, but that's if I'm going to keep it to one, that's the one. I think. Sounds good. Sounds good. Sounds good. Um, I'm going to leave a recommendation today for I think it's the second book from Robert Caro's uh, series on the years of Lyndon Johnson. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's a history of the 
his fight for the Texas Senate seat, mm-hmm. which is like a um, like a political brawl, uh, which involves corruption and potentially manufactured votes and like using these like really, really old fashioned system of jefes, like bosses mm-hmm. down mm-hmm. in South Texas. It is a fascinating and um, like to me, completely revelatory history of the political like machine at work. Thanks for having the conversation. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. <laughs>